Hi everyone, welcome back to the 13th episode of the Immunology and Beyond podcast. In today's episode, we sit down with Dr. David Glass to talk about his fascinating journey from full-time musician to immunologist. Dr. Glass recently obtained his PhD from Stanford University, where he applied mass cytometry technology and bioinformatics to answer big picture questions, such as how many different classes and subtypes of B-cells can we really identify? Throughout the episode, we also talk about imposter syndrome and tips to overcome it. We would like to welcome newly minted Dr. Glass, Dr. David Glass, to the Immunology and Beyond podcast. And so first, we wanted to get to know you a little bit better. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about your research and educational trajectory, starting from when you got your bachelor's at the University of Texas? Sure. So uh, thanks for the welcome. Happy to be here. I'm a newly minted PhD. I just graduated from Stanford immunology program with a, a PhD. I've taken a, a pretty long road getting here. So actually my my first bachelor's wasn't at University of Texas, it was at Texas State University. So right out of high school, I went and got a degree in music and sound recording technology. So this was a degree that's some music theory, some audio electronics, and then some you're in a recording studio and you're learning how to set up microphones and run mix boards and stuff like that. So that was actually a really fun degree. I spent a lot of time evenings and weekends uh, in studios recording bands, musicians. And I kind of followed that career trajectory for a few years after. So uh, I was a freelance musician. I worked uh, building gear for recording studios. I worked in recording studios. And then uh, I returned to school just shy of my 28th birthday to get a second bachelor's degree in molecular biology. And then after that, I came to Stanford and uh, here I am. Why was your main decision to go back to school and just suddenly switch paths at that age? Yeah, it's it's not the usual um, spot to go from music to uh, molecular biology. So I was, you know, originally getting my music degree because my passion was for music and for recording and creating music. And then uh, in the following years, I tried to make a living in as a recording engineer, but the process is difficult because your clients are all musicians and musicians are all broke. And so there's not really a business model that works too well. So my day job ended up being, as I said, creating gear for recording studios. And I was really living for the weekends and for the evenings, uh, playing in bands, recording other artists um, in a home studio or going to some studio in Austin. And I just felt like I was wasting 40 hours a week doing something I wasn't passionate about. So at that time, I, I tried to put a lot of thought into what meaningful work was, what's the kind of thing that you, you want to do where you can look back and feel good about it. Um, and feel like you're contributing to society and human well-being. And I, I was reading a lot of books and, you know, some pop science, some philosophy, some self-help. And I ultimately decided that I thought one of the most rewarding careers sounded like being a biomedical researcher. And so without having that much information about what that really looks like, I didn't do any in informational interviews or anything like that, which in, in hindsight, I would probably recommend, but I kind of just jumped into it and I luckily fell in love with it. But yeah, it's uh, a strange journey going into intro bio one with a bunch of 18 year olds at age 28. So there was definitely some moments of self-doubt through that process, but ultimately I kind of just buckled down and immersed myself in it. And I think I'm, I'm happier for it now. Do you think that that time that you took to really decide that you wanted to go back to school helped you? Like when you were doubting yourself, did you know that you put in Enough time into the decision and so you felt good about that yeah actually i had backup plans too so i um as i said i was, I was reading a lot of books and, and and trying to decide what would be a happier career and so i applied to ut austin um for their biology program i didn't have any other schools i applied to i was a local in the area so my backup plan was if this doesn't work out i'm gonna go teach uh, english in panama and spend that year or two deciding on a new path so my backup plan was basically more water treading, but in a new cultural environment. So, you know, uh, it's good to have a plan A and a plan B, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think are were the main advantages of you, like going back to doing a second degree? Did you feel like you had, because you had already gone through one degree, did you see any advantages of getting another one? I think um, 
Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of two questions, right? So the, the first would be, I, w I was kind of mandated to, to get a second bachelor's. I, I had originally thought about just going for a master's degree. And so I looked at uh, different biological master's degrees. And if you're, the extent of your biology knowledge is that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, which mine was at the time, like there's not many master's degrees looking for you. So I had to go back to get the bachelor's to get all the basic training. So intro bio one, intro chem one, physics one, calculus one, all, all of the stuff that most people go through in a science degree. Because again, my, my bachelor's was music. So the underlying core coursework was, was quite different. So one thing that helped me, I think, was I'd already finished all of my kind of core non-major specific classes so like english lit philosophy i didn't have to retake any of that stuff that carried over from my first bachelor's and i'm not sure actually in, in canada if you have the same uh, approach that we do but you know about one third of your degree is not really specific to your degree in in the us um so i i didn't have to redo that one third so my second bachelor's was about two thirds of the total coursework of a bachelor's if i had started from scratch and then i think also just being older you know in, in uh, one sense all of the people around you are much younger. And so that makes you feel a little nervous, but also by then I kind of figured out how to be an adult. So this wasn't my first time living alone. This wasn't my first time uh, having to create my own schedule. So a lot of the difficulties of college the first time are that you're growing up in real time while you're being you know, loaded with responsibility and debt. And I still had all the debt and the responsibility, but I, I knew how to, to function as a human being by then. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Just looking back through my first year, it was just complete mess trying to live alone for the first time and then also just being immersed in university. It's a lot to handle. So I, I gave myself food poisoning like three or four times my freshman year of college. So, you know, learning to cook was actually a big part of it too. Yeah, for sure. And so I guess we want to uh, get a little bit deeper into um, your research experiences during undergrad. And so because you already had this like idea that you wanted to be in biomedical research, did you seek out research opportunities like right away? Was that like your priority? Uh, it was soon. So I started in the summer, the first summer sessions so probably like June, and then I joined a lab that December. So I took uh, the first I guess summer and then fall to try and get through classes. And and this was a, I, I did a pretty breakneck pace. So it took me two years to get the second bachelor's. Usually it's a, a four year degree. And I said, uh, you know, it's about two thirds of the classes. So it's not quite as heavily loaded as it sounded, but still pretty advanced. And uh, the other thing is all of your classes are STEM. So there's no breaks where you're taking like German film or something, you know, uh, a little more relaxing. It's all pretty intense. So I think the first like fall semester, I had a, a really loaded up course schedule and I just wanted to make sure that I could handle it. And then once I felt like I could is when I went and get lab experience. But even then it, it's difficult because um, when I showed up at Stanford, uh, of all my classmates, I had the least amount of research experience. So I had a, a year and a half and a lot of these people had done you know, a full year of tech work or two years of tech work and then a couple years of undergrad work too. So some of them had four or five years of research experience and I, I had a, a measly one and a half years at that point. That's a little bit surprising to hear. I feel that in terms of my own experience, I feel like your like your um, bachelor thesis is like your main, for the most part, like your main introduction to like real research. So it's surprising to hear that a lot of people already had like four years of research experience under their belt. It, it definitely intimidated me uh, when I came here, but it, it all worked out. Um, my my undergrad experience was very, very positive. I was actually in a lab that was um, doing antibody engineering. And again, the, the way I stumbled upon this was pure serendipity. I essentially got a list of faculty who sounded like they did something interesting in some realm. So I probably emailed 20 or 30 professors who all just kind of checked the box. And this was the first and maybe only real positive response I got. And so I joined that lab and, you know, my life's been pretty dedicated to B cells ever since. Uh, you know, you put a lot of it's really, really almost almost uncomfortable how much of your life is decided by these kind of uh, happenstance encounters and by the role of luck and chance. Yeah, for sure. We're definitely a lover of B cells in this podcast. So if you don't mind telling us a little bit more about the topic of your um, BSc thesis and what exactly you were doing engineering these antibodies for. Yeah, so the lab is interested in therapeutic engineering, so essentially making better monoclonal therapies. And we were actually engineering the FC portion of antibody. So I don't, I don't know uh, how how deep you guys have got into uh, IG structure on the on the podcast, 
but you know the antibody is basically a y-shaped molecule and the arms are the fab region that's where the antibody the target binding domain is that's where the uh, cdr loops are that, that determine what antigen you're going to bind with the antibody and then the base of the y is the fc region and that's what what interacts with your immune system and confers all the effector functions of the antibody. So for my work, we were trying to engineer the FC portion. And so the idea was you could put whatever target you wanted on the, the fab arms and then use our backbone for enhanced effector function. And the way we were trying to get enhanced effector function was to combine the IgG isotype and the IgA isotype. So we were trying to create a hybrid IgGA uh, antibody. So the idea being IgG has prolonged half-life in your blood. And so when you use IgG as a therapeutic, it sticks around for a long time. IgA has um, uh, a lot shorter half-life in the blood. So if you use it as a therapeutic, it disappears in just a, a few days. And so this is based on the IgG, it's long half-life based on binding to FCRN, one of the FC receptors that you find on immune cells and various other cell types. But IgA doesn't bind FCRN. But IgA does bind FC-alpha R1, which is a molecule found all over neutrophils and a bunch of other myeloid cells. So the idea is you get the long half-life of IgG, but you could um, empower and activate all of these other immune cells normally ignored by IgG therapeutics. So the hope was we could combine these things and use it as a cancer therapeutic or maybe some other kind of monoclonal targeting uh, therapeutic. That sounds very interesting. So are you saying that you were basically genetically modifying the like IgA sequence so that it would bind to the IgG like FC receptor? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we took components of IgG and IgA domain and um, we did rational design. So this is where you you look at the crystal structures and you say, all right, these residues, these residues, and we'll put them onto a backbone together. And then you you combine that with some um, targeted mutagenesis to try and improve binding. And then you express these in like a CHO cell, some kind of cell line. And then you do binding assays against the different FC receptors and try and find something that's going to bind both the targets that you want. That's super cool. And so did you guys actually find that this worked like in vivo? So that was the hope. So I left the project at, we had, we had successfully made the molecule. We showed that it had binding to the two molecules we cared about. And we were getting the crystal structure done and someone was going to do some in vivo work. But then I left for my PhD and the person I was working with got sucked up on another project. And now he's a professor at Dartmouth and the, the, the project's somewhere in limbo. So I'm hoping that someday some grad student will stumble upon all of this data and say, I could write this up and I can get like a middle author paper out of it maybe. But uh, at this point, uh, I haven't touched that work since 2015, so I'm not super hopeful that it will ever emerge. Though, you know, there's probably a company who's done the same thing somewhere too, so uh, at least in spirit, the project will live on. Yeah, that's super cool. Well, thanks for sharing um, all about your undergrad research. So I guess now we're transition more into the work you're actually doing now during your PhD at Stanford. Awesome. Thank you, Anna. So it sounds very interesting when you were talking about antibodies and crystal structures, because I, I worked in an extra crystallography lab, and I know sometimes that involves a lot of computational biology. And that kind of brought me to the question of did that experience that you had during your research undergraduate kind of pivoted you towards going to more bioinformatics so away from wet lab stuff to more dry lab kind of research yeah i don't think it was specifically that experience though being in that lab did help so the the rational design work we did was not that computationally sophisticated it was you know looking at structures and and pulling out sequences it was a kind of manual, I would say, at that point, for the most part. Um, but at the same time, in the lab, there was a lot of people doing immune repertoire sequencing. So sequencing the BCR locus and um, pulling out different antibody reads to try and understand the immune repertoire in different contexts, different diseases, and trying to find uh, potentially therapeutic monoclonals from those repertoire sequencing analyses. So I wasn't doing any of that work, but it was being done around me. So I was starting to gain appreciation for kind of the power of bioinformatics and for these big data sets. And then I, I came to Stanford. Stanford has a, a reputation for being a little more computational in their, in their biology. And of course, Stanford campus itself is located inside Silicon Valley. And so uh, I kind of just did the uh, maybe oversimplified idea that I'm moving to Silicon Valley, I should learn how to program. So that's actually <laughs> kind of how I ended up doing uh, computational work. Was that something that you kind of dabble into before you start your, your PhD in bioinformatics? 
not specifically. I had taken like a class in C++ in my first undergrad. And then as I was going to Stanford, once I got the acceptance, I did like a Code Academy Python. But I hadn't taken any coursework uh, in my second undergrad. I hadn't used any in my research in undergrad. So I, I was going in fresh and um, basically inexperienced with programming entirely. So at Stanford, uh, in the immunology program, we have two different tracks. One's the cell and molecular, and one's the systems and computational. And so I signed up for the systems computational track, and that involved taking intro classes in computer science and statistics. And then the, the program's kind of nicely designed where it's a, a bit of a choose your own adventure. Because as you can imagine, there's people with uh, varying degrees of experience coming in. So there are people who have an undergrad uh, degree in bioinformatics or in computer science, or they, you know, worked in a computational lab. And so they don't need to take, you know, introductory programming one. So there's a lot of flexibility in the program. But I, I, I took classes in intro CS, um, intro statistics, and then machine learning, bioinformatics practices, data science, a, a lot of coursework. Uh, in a realm that I thought would be useful to the kind of research I ended up doing. And, you know, it's uh, a lot more coursework than a lot of other programs, but even so, I think my, my PhD ended up being pretty productive. And so the idea was to basically front load education as much as you can. And so by the end, you have a lot of skills that you can apply to a lot of different biological questions. And so that was kind of the strategy of my PhD. Well, I feel like we've been talking about a lot about this PhD, but we haven't really asked the question of, you know, what was your PhD? How did you get into it? And, and kind of, it seems like you found a foothold in immunology with, you know, B cells and the antibodies, and you fell in love with that, but then that carried on into your PhD. So what was that thought process? What was that journey like? Yeah, so I was pretty B cell biased going into my PhD because of uh, my antibody engineering days. And I think this is also kind of my approach to a lot of the science where I, I don't want to compete with everybody. I want to find like a niche that people aren't looking at as much. And in immunology, if you're not looking at T cells, you're in a weird niche that no one's looking at basically. So I, I kind of just looked at the overall checkboxes that I wanted to hit in my PhD. So I was coming to Stanford. I was like, I, I want to do computational stuff, Silicon Valley. Right. And I like B cells. It's, it's, it's niche enough that uh, there's, there's not a bunch of competition. And if I'm going to do something computational, I need to get a technology uh, that generates a lot of data. Um, so I can apply these computational skills to a data set that uh, makes sense. And so I ended up joining the lab of Sean Bendel. And so Sean is a professor who uh, has a lab that's mostly unified, unified by a technology. So we use mass cytometry. On JP's episode, he talked about it a little bit. Um, but this is essentially the same thing as flow cytometry, except instead of fluorophores, we tag our antibodies with metal isotopes. And so our readout is using a mass spec rather than a laser. But we get basically the same kind of data where we have hundreds of thousands or millions of single cells and then a number of parameters that are the protein expression value of whatever your targets were. And the difference is we have about 40 or 50 targets uh, per cell. So I, I was using that technology and uh, my my goal was basically to uh, apply this to B cells to better understand the heterogeneity of B cells. Because most immunologists, if you ask them, what's a B cell, they'll say, oh, it's the antibody producing cell. And you say, well, what kind of B, what kind of B cells are there? They're like plasma and not plasma. And you know, that didn't sit well with me because the immune system is very complex. And uh, I felt like there was a lot of unappreciated heterogeneity out there that was kind of overlooked. And if you look at the mouse world, uh, they've done quite a better job of mapping out what these cell types are and the different roles B cells can play. So B cells make antibodies, but they also secrete cytokines, they present antigen, they regulate the immune system. And then antibody production itself is not a monolith. There's different antibody isotypes and sub-isotypes, and all of those confer different downstream effector functions. So the, the B cell world is actually pretty complicated. So my idea basically was to start building an atlas of human B cells to understand what are the different cells cell phenotypes, what do they look like? And once we've discovered that, we can start figuring out what are the function of these different cell types. So first question is, what's out? In terms of kind of the thought process, you know, and this is where my knowledge of bioinformatics is very limited. So what came first, the question, or, you know, you had this tools available to you and then you decided to find something to apply it to, right? Yeah, that's uh, the question no one wants to talk about, right? So, um, 
I would love to say I, I had this great question and I thought, what's the best technology to answer this question? But that was, that was not how I went about it. I, I had a hammer and I was looking for nails. So I rotated in Sean's lab and I really liked it. And um, I thought he was a, a great mentor, it was a great lab. And I was really excited about the technology. And I knew I liked B cells. And so I basically proposed, could I uh, use the technology to try and investigate and understand B cells better? And we kind of built a project around that. So I, I don't know if I would recommend that approach, but that's what happened for my PhD and it worked out. I think, you know, the, the better scientific method generally is to find the question and then seek the technology. And I think there's a, a bit of an issue in the systems biology world generally where you have a lot of people who are technologists and bioinformaticians who have tools and they're trying to find the right questions to apply them to. So this can work sometimes, but a lot of times it also results in kind of these data dumps where there's not much biological insight. So I, I think this is actually a problem pre, uh, plaguing the uh, world of systems biology that actually the, the best answer is just good biological training and learning how to properly design experiments still even if you have these very rich data sets you get out. Nice. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And it seems like with your background in B cell biology, you were able to find something that will be applicable, right? And it would have like real life consequences that would be useful towards furthering our understanding of the immune system. So that's definitely very, very important. Another question that I had is in terms when I, when I think of a dry lab or somebody who works in bioinformatics, I always, I don't know exactly how pipeline works is there does that involve when you were getting the samples for this uh, site off were you the one running the samples and then you were the one analyzing it was that somebody else doing it and then you were collecting the data like kind of what is the life like in somebody who works in the bioinformatics lab yeah so uh in our lab uh most of the scientists are a combination of wet and dry lab uh myself included for the most part we will design and run our own experiments uh and then we will get the data sets ourselves and analyze the data as well so we're all kind of sitting between wet and dry biology. So it's kind of an interesting place to be because, you know, as a scientist, generally, you're a jack of all trades. You have to be a good communicator. You have to have a good eye for aesthetics. You have to be a good writer. Uh, you have to think creatively, but also rationally. So we have, we have to do everything as scientists. I think being a systems biologist kind of at the intersection of bioinformatics and and, and experimental biology is really no different from that. So as you can imagine, you have to still learn all of the skills. So I have to learn how to pipette and process tissue and run experiments. But then I'll also at the end of that, I also have to also apply um, machine learning, good programming practices, and you know rigorous statistical analyses. So it's a it's just I'd say like an extension of the science life that all scientists are already leading. But likewise, I think each of these ends up being really unique skills. So I don't think being good in wet lab necessarily helps you being in dry lab. And so these are these are all skills you've got to develop uh, kind of individually on their own. And I think this is uh, often kind of a, a barrier for a lot of people entering bioinformatics and entering the dry lab generally, particularly coming from the wet lab, because you are starting from scratch. And as you go through and develop these skills, you're still keeping, you know, a foot in the door of wet lab biology. You're still keeping up on the, the literature of biology. So you can't fully dedicate yourself to learning programming and machine learning. And so, you know, you have to be comfortable with the idea that there are people who are better at programming than you. There are people who understand machine learning better than you, but there's also people who are better at running experiments than you. And then there's people who are better designing experiments to you. So there's, there's moments when you feel like I am not amazing at anything. And it's a hard place to be, I think, sometimes. You, you think to yourself, I've developed all these skills, but I, I know so many people who are better at any of these individual things that I can do. And so I kind of think of systems biologists as kind of the translators. And uh, so we are sitting at the intersection of computer science and statistics and biology. And so we've developed uh, this ability to, to speak and kind of traffic in the language of these different disciplines. And your value is being able to apply the intersection of skills to answer scientific questions. And it's a difficult spot to be. So as I said, you know, you feel like you're the master of anything, but I think as the field generates more and more data sets that are larger and more complex and, and require these more sophisticated tools to analyze, it's really helpful to have the people analyzing these data sets also have a healthy knowledge of the biology and the biological insights they're trying to pull out of them.
I agree with that a lot. I feel like you need that person who understands both worlds in order to make that connection because a lot of times biologists have this data or this question that they don't really know how to answer. And you need somebody who knows, understands computational biology so they know the capacity and the ability of, of you know, the tools that are available, but also how to apply it to the questions, right? So I, but, I think there, there, there used to be this idea not too long ago where you just take a traditional biologist and you get like a computer scientist or a statistician, you put them in the room together and you can generate awesome work and that's all you need. And I think that a lot of projects that have gone that route end up being complete failures because the biologist doesn't understand the assumptions of the models that the statistician is using and the statistician doesn't understand the noise and the biological possibilities of the data set. So having these cross-trained uh, scientists is, is really important so that someone can keep an eye on all aspects of the project. I agree. And I think that makes somebody with that set of skills very, very unique. I just have one more question about bioinformatics and then we, we can dive into your research. When you got into bioinformatics, did you have to develop your own software uh, in terms of coding when you're when you're applying it to, to a project? Is there a software that's commonly used? The way that I've approached things is I often use packages and tools created by other scientists, usually for biology sometimes for machine learning, um, but I will string all these things together in my own bioinformatic pipelines. So I often don't write these de novo scripts for the basic underlying analyses, but I combine all of these things in a way that is useful and customized for my own data set. And I, I started off with actually just kind of good mentorship. So I was in a lab where there's a few computational biologists around who were very skilled and I started a computational subgroup in my lab. So we had a, a weekly lab meeting already. I started uh, another weekly lab meeting and this was like as a, as a second year. So, you know, kind of maybe a little bit of hubris there, but uh, my, my goal, I, I organized it and said, we should have some kind of forum where we could all talk and help each other. But really, I just wanted all the smart people in the room with me so I could learn from them. And so uh, at these meetings, we'd either have someone present, you know, what they were working on, and we'd get really into the, the, the weeds with the code and the statistical analyses they're using. Or we'd also say, free day, bring your code in, ask questions to the group, get feedback. So I, I use that a lot too. And this was a course like in parallel with me taking a bunch of, uh, of coursework. But through having these good mentors and getting access to these, these great courses, uh, I eventually developed these skills. And then by the end of my PhD, uh, I did a lot of mentoring and, and training myself for grad students and, and other postdocs to try and develop their bioinformatics skills, particularly actually after the pandemic struck because everyone's stuck at home and they can't get into the lab. And so, you know, in March of 2020, everyone was like, time for me to learn bioinformatics, right? So uh, I spent actually a tremendous amount of time uh, in 2020 uh, mentoring and teaching. And I gave a few workshops in analysis of mass cytometry data. Uh, I think with, with bioinformatics in particular, so uh, this is probably true of, of, of all PhD students and, and various levels of scientists, uh, there's a ton of imposter syndrome. And, and this is you know, something all PhDs feel because you're around for uh, creating great experiments and, and writing up amazing papers. But I think this is particularly true in bioinformatics because a, a lot of us come from a biological background where quantitative biology isn't emphasized. And, and a lot of the skills, as I mentioned, for um, programming and for statistics really aren't the same as in the, the wet lab. And so you're, you're starting kind of de novo when you're trying to generate these skills and see this very foreign looking language and a lot of numbers and they get intimidated and they think I'm not smart enough for this. They see someone who's got a lot of skills and they think, you know, sure, I could probably like spend some time on this, but I'll never get to that level. And so a lot of the, the mentorship I've given the last year has been trying to convince people that that's just not the case. You know, I came in with, with, with no experience in these things. And the only reason I got good at it was I spent a lot of time on it. So really just like any other skill in your PhD or in your life, you get good at these things by just spending time at them. And when you see someone who's amazing at it or is at a level that you can't even imagine, it's probably just because they spent more time at it than you have. So uh, I'd, I'd really encourage people to don't treat programming or statistics on this pedestal that's unattainable. It's, it's really no different from all of the other amazing skills that you've developed in your life to get where you are now. And it's something that if you find some good resources, some good mentorship, uh, it's really easy to get to these higher places with just the application of some time. Yeah, I definitely, I've been there myself. I maybe still am not so much after our conversation today, but I have felt intimidated by the world of bioinformatics just because it's so unknown and it seems like there's a large um, learning curve, but it, it does seem like after hearing you talk that it's just something that 
everyone starts there and by finding good mentors and that can take you through that process. It might not be such a large learning curve after all. Uh, we can now dive more into the research that you've been doing, you know, going, going back to what you've done during your PhD. So I've read some of the, your publications that you have done um, during your PhD. There's been a couple, so congratulations on that. Uh, thank you. So one of the papers that, that, I, that I looked at was, when, you know, you mentioned that you were phenotyping uh, human B cells. I was wondering if you can talk a little more about kind of that, that work and that project and question you were trying to answer and what were your findings? Yeah, so, and this is uh, coming from, I suppose, uh, an immunological point where you are looking at envy in the T-cell world. Um, and so, uh, if you know much about T-cell immunophenotyping, you probably know that there's a ton of different T-cell subsets. And we have tremendous granularity in knowing the cytokine biases of different T-cells, as well as uh, their effector status or their memory status. And uh, you can sort out all these populations by just looking at their surface marker expression. So this, this is because there's a useful phenomenon in immunology that the surface phenotype of a cell is actually a good proxy for its functional phenotype. So I really kind of wanted to approach understanding the B cell world better from that point of view. So I, I basically asked, what are the different B cell surface phenotypes that are there? And then once we can map out all of those, we can start charting the functional properties of those unique groups. And so we applied uh, mass cytometry. Um, again, this is the, the kind of 40 plex flow like assay and we further multiplexed it. So as you can imagine, 40 markers is pretty good, but if you're trying to understand the extent of the B cell surface proteome, it's just insufficient, right? So we developed an approach where we essentially made or bought antibodies against 350 different targets um, that are commonly expressed on immune cells. So this was, I'll, I'll show it to my, my co-author on this, uh, Albert Tsai, because he actually did most of the heavy lifting there. This was my rotation project coming in at the end of this. So I made maybe 30 or 40 of those antibodies, but he did the lion's share of the work there. And so what we did was we spread these across 12 different mass cytometry panels, took a bunch of healthy human B cells and just ran all of these different markers and then just looked for hits, looked for markers that were expressed on at least some set of B cells. And all of the most interesting markers we, we pulled from this screen. So we started with 350 markers. We identified 98 that were positively expressed on human B cells. And then from those 98, we wanted to build a, a single mass cytometry panel. So that's again, about 40 markers. And so I pulled out all of the, the markers that had interesting expression patterns, like differential expression between different subsets, um, some weird tail of expression, known B cell markers that, that already had shown importance. And I put them all into a single panel together. And that way we can measure all of them on the same cells at the same time. And then I got some more uh, healthy human blood, ran this new B cell centric panel on uh, B cells and uh, used a, a clustering approach. So this is basically an unsupervised way to find unique phenotypes of B cells. And then the rest of the paper is basically just describing these in, in different detail. So after I found these B cells, I, I applied different assays, looking at metabolism, looking at cell signaling, looking at uh, biosynthesis. We even did some immune repertoire work um, that's looking at the, the VDJ regions of some of these different subsets. And so, so the idea was to, you know, find what's out there and then describe it to the best of our abilities, at least in healthy human beings. In, in this panel and in, in these populations that you identify, were, were they found across all patients? Yeah, so um, I think in total, across all different assays, we had an N of around 30 patients. Um, and we always found all of the subsets in all the patients. So this is like one of the important uh, stipulations I, I made for choosing you know what's a true subset versus what's maybe not right so one i i don't want to find some random stuff that i only see one patient i want to see something that's cross um a lot of different patients so that it's actual relevant biology and you know something that is found in in, in you or i or, or anyone else on the planet and then the other thing was you know I don't, I don't know how many single cell papers you guys have read but one of the kind of sins sometimes is people will do some kind of clustering algorithm and they'll say aha there are 40 different B cells and here they are one through 40 and then they'll show you a giant heat map and then that's the paper. And you know, the next person comes around and, they'll, and, and they, can, they can't find those 40 or they find a different 40. So let's make sure as we found robust B cell subsets that are found in everybody and ones that didn't require a fancy algorithm or fancy technology. So for all of these subsets, 
I give you flow cytometry panels so you can sort these, these cells out yourself with uh, just six, seven colors. So, you know, one of the important things for me in this paper was I really wanted to be kind of foundational work that others could build off of. And so, you know, one of the most important things for human biology work is sorting out cell subsets. And so by giving sorting strategies for all of these, then I can empower places uh, where they maybe can't afford a mass cytometer of as much uh, training in bioinformatics, and they can still sort these populations out. They can still perform in vitro assays, or if they have a disease sample, they can still quantify these populations and look for enrichments in, say, disease versus control. So it really was made to be a paper that is useful to other immunologists. Nice. And I always find it very interesting when somebody develops like a tool or a model that can help or give birth to a lot of more different questions in research, such as like establishing this phenotypes of B cells. It just like, I feel like that has such a huge impact on the future of science. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I also read another one of your papers where you looked at lymphoma and leukemia and you try to phenotype them as well using kind of similar technology that that you're using for the b cells and if you can just share with us a little more about kind of what was the questions you were trying to answer what were the tools how, how'd you go about it and then i have a couple of follow-up questions after that yeah so I'll, again shout out this was um, a, a project i, I co-authored with albert sai he's a pathologist um, at stanford he was a postdoc in our lab he's now got his own lab at stanford as well um, but he's a hematopathologist, so he, you know, gets samples from, from patients all the time, and he has to determine the, the diagnosis for, for different patients. And so uh, what we were trying to do is really improve this pipeline. So right now, you have someone come in, and they have some kind of putative blood disease. We're trying to figure out what it is. We'll get a bone marrow sample, and we'll smear it on a slide. And then a pathologist will look at the cells under a light microscope, and they'll, they'll notice morphological features of the cells, so what's the cell size? What's the, the chromatin fineness? What's the, the nuclear structure? They'll look at all, all these different uh, features. And then from there, they will make a kind of first pass diagnosis and they will order a series of flow cytometry panels run on the remaining remainder of that bone marrow sample. And so then they'll do a lot of immunophenotyping to try and figure out the cell type exactly. So it's usually a panel of multiple flow cytometry panels. You know, you can only fit a handful of markers per flow cytometry panel. And so if you want to look at a lot of different markers, then uh, you need to have multiple flow panels. But, you know, you have to make sure that you're looking at the same cells in each panel. And so people usually use CD45 versus side scatter. So there's a, a free feature you get off flow cytometry that is measuring the light that's reflected in, uh, off the side of the cell. And it's usually thought to be kind of a, a marker of cell granularity and complexity. And so... After they get all their information back from these flow panels, pathologists have to mentally integrate these two features, cell morphology and the uh, immunophenotype, and they have to kind of generate a diagnosis from that. And there's a few problems. So one is obviously looking at a microscope is very qualitative and subjective. You know, there's not a thing you're measuring. You're not saying if you're over this number, you are this. You're instead looking at it and saying, Ah, uh, to me, this looks like X or Y or Z. And then, of course, the other problem is having mobile panels can be very problematic, especially, you know, a lot of leukemias are childhood and, you know, you can't take too much sample from a, a child. So you have limited sample. You're trying to split it between different panels. You know, you might not have enough information to, to get all, all the, uh, the data you need to make an accurate diagnosis. And so what we wanted to do was to create a single assay that combines these two ideas using mass cytometry. So we wanted to have all of these markers that are used for immunophenotyping in one panel, requiring only one sample, but we also wanted information about morphology. So we wanted to kind of teach a mass cytometer to see like a pathologist. And so the idea was we dedicate a few channels of the panel to quantifying targets that are responsible for or correlated with cell morphology. So we have antibodies against uh, components of cell granules, components of chromatin, components of the nuclear envelope. And by putting all of those things together, we can kind of recapitulate the differences that you see under a microscope using a mass cytometer. So we can uh, not subjectively, objectively uh, delineate the major immune cell lineages and these different cell types using these markers, just like you would be able to do if you could see them with a microscope. My question would be is how far are we away from seeing technology like the one that you're describing or that's within the paper from being used within the clinic? Yeah, so the, the Psy Labs, my co-author, his lab is basically dedicated to making this happen. So he has an appointment in the pathology department. So he still sees 
uh, patients, so he's patient data, and he's basically tasked with making this a feasible pipeline. So both experimentally and computationally, having the protocols in place to try and make this happen at a scale where we can apply it at Stanford Hospital and then kind of evaluate the efficacy. And hopefully from there, we can expand it out. And the second thing is that as we generate more and more data, after we've implemented this, we've started saving, collecting data, we know the final diagnosis that the pathologist made for all of these. And if we can combine the, um, the, the, the cell uh, quantifications, we now have a giant training set that we can use for machine learning prediction. So once we generate all this data, we can start automating this diagnosis us. And I think it would be still important to have a human in the loop. But our, our dream here is essentially you take the sample, you run the assay, and then the pathologist gets a predicted diagnosis and a whole bunch of plots showing the expression of these cells that justify that diagnosis. And that way they can still have a, a human in the loop to look for technical problems. They can still use the weight of all of their experience and training to um, you know make sure the diagnosis is accurate. But I think this will streamline and improve the accuracy of diagnoses long term. Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. Oh, this this stuff is so cool. <laughs> you know, um, it, it all stemmed from uh, getting the skill set computationally, getting to know a technology really well, and then I've applied this to a, a lot of different projects. So, and it, it's not that I'm some you know super productive PhD student who's just figured out some hack. I learned a skill that's applicable to a lot of different things, and it also means that when I I go to my postdoc, I could follow a lot of different stories and narratives that I had kind of played with a little bit during my PhD. Yeah, it seems like you've had a chance to kind of explore a lot of different aspects of immunology with the tool that you're using, and collaboration is so important in the science, and it seems like it's a huge part of what you've been doing. So that, that's wonderful. I think we might move on to- I did have a question that is kind of related to what, to what we've been talking about. Over the past episodes of the podcast, we've been talking a lot about Cytoff. And so I think that every technology has their advantages and disadvantages, but we haven't really talked about the disadvantages of using something like Cytoff. So would you be able to comment on that? And do you think what is restricting it right now is the lack of people that are specializing in analyzing all the data that comes from something like using Cytoff. Oh yeah, sure. So there are uh, a number of um, just technical limitations. Uh, so let's start with those. So new single cell omics, this is actually kind of lower dimensionality than a lot of them. So we get about 40 or 50 markers, but single cell RNA-seq, you can get, you know, thousands of different genes. Um, single cell attack, kind of the same thing. And all of these sequencing-based multi-omics are expanding the number of markers too. So, you know, fewer than a lot of the newer technologies. Our flow rate is a lot slower than flow cytometry. So we can run about a tenth number of cells in a day that a flow cytometer can. Uh, so, you know, I still generate data sets of, of million plus cells, which is pretty good. But if you're doing flow clinical work, you know, they're doing tens of millions of cells in a day. And then the sensitivity of mass cytometry is not quite as good as the sensitivity of flow cytometry. And so uh, low expression antigens, so, you know, proteins that basically have a low copy number can be missed by Cytoff sometimes. And then of course it's a destructive technology. So in order to quantify each of these antibodies that we have, uh, we have to first ignite the cell into a state of plasma. And as you can imagine, the survival rate for cells in plasma is not high, it's actually zero. So uh, you can't do any of these downstream assays. You can't get a protein profile, sort it into a dish, and then do an in vitro experiment or do another kind of uh, sequencing assay. It's, it, the cells are gone. So there's those limitations. And, you know, we, we don't have access to genetic material. So there have been a few assays posed where you can get quantification of a couple different RNAs with Cytoff, but those aren't really used and uh, they're not really that, that helpful compared to a lot of the sequencing technologies. And so if, if what's really important to you is uh, specificity of RNA expression or the chromatin modifying effects on specific genes, so like basically epigenetic regulation, Cytoff is, is not as specific that either. And then uh, I, th I think, you, you know, you brought the, the computational point too, and I think that's an issue as well. It's kind of a, a strange spot that Cytoff sits in where because of its similarities to flow, it's a lot more accessible technology to a lot of immunologists where they already have a lot of training in flow. And so the transition to Cytoff isn't that difficult, but the data that spits out the, the, the 40 dimensions really changes the analyses quite, quite a bit. So in traditional flow, we'll look at biaxial plots, we'll gate some things, we'll, we'll quantify that way. But once you start increasing the number of markers to 40 or 50, if you wanted to examine every biaxial plot, it ends up being hundreds of plots you'd have to look at. And so you can't really do 
any de novo cell discovery manually. You've got to start using clustering algorithms and bioinformatics. And so although running the technology is not that hard anymore, you still need to have a good grasp on the computational pipelines to really get the most out of your data and to make sure that your findings are uh, robust and uh, repeatable. Thanks for expanding on all those points. I just wanted to get a little bit more an understanding of, like you said, the limitations of the technology. It's still great. I still love it. Um, so I guess from now we're going to be moving in a little bit onto the reflection. So kind of your personal experiences through your PhD. So you did mention a few in terms of coming into a dry lab really not having any background in bioinformatics and learning that and going through that imposter syndrome. So can you expand a little bit on that and also some of the hardships that you faced when you started your PhD? So, you know, as, as I mentioned, most people starting out in a PhD generally, and maybe more specifically in computational biology, do face imposter syndrome. And, you know, this the idea that Everyone around me is smarter and better than I am, and I am not good enough to be here. And, you know, whenever you start down a new road, a new discipline, I think that's kind of natural to feel that way. You know, I was a musician before and I first picked up a guitar. You'd see some amazing guitar player on YouTube and you'd be like, oh, well, I will never be able to do that. So, but, you know, you, you keep playing, you keep you keep working at it and, and you improve. So bioinformatics is, is no different. It just uh, the symbols you see are more scary looking and not as doesn't hit the reward centers as much as something like learning an instrument or even something like pipetting maybe. But you know, yeah, I'd say that the important thing that kind of got me through that was a as as someone who did a second bachelor's already, I had become very comfortable with the feeling of being the the dumbest or at least the least experienced person in the room. So feeling inadequate next to the people around me. And I think if you can be comfortable with being bad at something and you can work through being bad at something, then that's really the only way to get good at something. So I'd, I'd really recommend trying to get comfortable with that uncomfortable feeling of not being that good at something and just working through it. I don't, I don't think learning bioinformatics is fundamentally different from learning anything else on this planet. And so if you're the kind of person who's able to become interested in something and is able to maintain the discipline through the failures, through the frustrations, then really there's there's very little to the limit of what you can accomplish. Yeah, I think a lot of people can relate with that in terms of when faced with a problem, you're usually, oh, like I suck at this, so I just kind of want to quit at it. And kind of going in line with that, when you did encounter those problems, did you have like a mantra or did you say something to yourself or was it just kind of built over time that, okay, I suck at this now, but I can work through it and get better at it? Like, what did you do specifically? Yeah. So I think with learning computational biology, for me, it was, again, drawing lessons on other things that I had developed skills at in the past. So remembering what it felt like to be terrible at guitar or terrible at you know any of the other hobbies or work skills that you've developed and remembering that like i'm no longer terrible at those things and so i know that these are the natural feelings that that are accompanying the act of learning anything and just trying to keep that in mind and if it's the the first time you've ever uh, you know really approached something that you thought that you didn't come out as a natural something that this is the first time you've really struggled then it can be pretty difficult to to face that down. And it's kind of true for your PhD generally. You got to find your own way, essentially. You know, know yourself and know how you work. Know how to reward yourself uh, when you've done good things. Know how to take a break when you need to. Uh, you know, if you can apply yourself and you can maintain the discipline to keep going forward without, you know, any kind of negative self not self-harm exactly, but, you know, if, if you can push through a lot of these problems in a way that maintains your mental health, really, I think that's the secret to accomplishing almost anything in life is uh, continued application towards a goal while keeping your brain happy and intact. And, uh, you know, there's there's no formula out there. Uh, everyone's kind of kind of find their own path to do that. But I think that's the way to aim. I think that's pretty reassuring for either for our listeners or for us ourselves, but like specifically like for myself, just knowing that like the tough times don't really last and you can navigate through them, find what you need to do to kind of push through. 
So I guess on the flip side, what were some of the best times during your PhD? Like what brought you the most joy? What was the most memorable parts of your PhD? Yeah. So I always, you know, when I, I talk to younger students uh, about choosing a lab, I always say, you know, find good people. And I don't necessarily mean just good at science. I mean, people that you like and respect and that people that you want to be around. So both your mentor and the lab, you know, you have to choose a lab that doing science that you think is good and interesting, but there's probably a lot of labs doing good and interesting science that you could get into. So uh, I just highly recommend choosing good people. And so that was my approach. And uh, my good times are mostly just the friends I made in the PhD program. I got married during my PhD and my side of the wedding, I think six out of seven were people I met during my PhD. Just really good human beings who you know cared about me who had outside of science, an interesting set of hobbies, just well-rounded, good people. And um, I invited my boss to my wedding too, and he, he's a, a great person too. We've, we've gone skiing together. Uh, we had several lab retreats and um, I've gone, you know, out drinking with my, my boss and after conferences and things like that, you know, just someone you can bond with was, was, was really great for me. So my good times were just kind of the people I met along the way. Like throughout our podcast, I really think that's been an underlying trend um, in terms of not, it's just even beyond the science of the things that you discover, but it really boils down to the people that you did the science with. And also we saw that you were involved in a couple of programs, so such as Energy Science Bowl and Science Pen Pal program. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so throughout my PhD and my second undergrad particularly, my, my first goal was kind of just general community service, but I, I, I then kind of pivoted and thought, you know, I should make use of my, my specific scientific training as much as I can too, because that has an asset that can be helpful. So in my undergrad, I, um, was part of a, a group that would volunteer for various community service events. And I ended up working at an elementary school a bunch and basically just like helping set up and tear down all of the fun little like conference days that the kids had. So they have like international day and they'd get to hear about all these different countries and cultures and stuff like that. So it, it was nice being in that kind of educational realm. In my PhD, I volunteered for the Science Bowl, which is like a high school science Olympiad kind of competition where they have to answer questions about different scientific topics. And then the scientific pen pals was be paired with a high school student who maybe didn't have any kind of scientific role models in their life. Somewhat they didn't know any scientists. So the idea was kind of just to talk them through what it's like being a scientist, possible careers you can get out of pursuing science. And, you know, all, all of that work, uh, I think accomplishes uh, a few things. So first on a personal level, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have ever followed some of um, kind of the happiness science, but I, I kind of got obsessed with this several times throughout my life because I think maintaining happiness is so important to uh, being a productive member of society too. I feel like usually people kind of flip the priority of those two things. Um, I always try and prioritize happiness as much as I can. But, you know, the science of happiness basically shows that you're at your happiest when you're not trying to do everything for yourself, but when you're trying to give back to others, you know, when you have those connections with people, either in your personal life or in your community, uh, it makes you a happier person. So, you know, I, I try to engage these things on one level just for my own happiness. And then of course, you know, we are all uh, citizens in, in a society. And I think we also have a responsibility to try and make our society a better place. And for me, I would like to just see more science education. I'd like to have more engineers, more scientists and more innovators in society. I feel like, um, you know, the way society has been organized, particularly in the last couple of decades, there's been such um, an emphasis on finances and the financial sector and and the, the goal of, of, of making money. And, you know, I, I feel like I want to live in a society where it's full of people who want to build things and improve society and, and improve human well-being and alleviate suffering. So uh, I've always tried to gear my outreach towards education so I can kind of help build a society that I see. So if you could come up, like based on that, if you can come up with like the ideal um, way to engage young students or a youth program, what would it look like? I think having uh, a bunch of elementary schools, having positive associations at school is one really easy, important step. Because I know when I was in school in elementary, I already hated school and really made applying myself throughout my schooling career really difficult. And so I think having a lot of positive associations early is great. 
the science bowl, uh, you know, I think that's a pretty easy one where th these are students who are probably already interested in science. And I think that this is more of a push to get them to actually major in stuff. You know, they're, they're learning so much science they're learning so much technology. I, I think, uh, it really biases these kids to actually follow those careers. And then the science pen pal was, I think really nice because it was so personal and I got to have conversations about science, but also about other things and about these kids lives and show them that you can be a normal human being because you know there's there's not that much scientific representation on tv and probably half of it is you know weird evil or nerdy people being scientists and you know we are a very diverse group of people so trying to just come off as a normal human being in my writing was my approach i don't know how much that came off i probably actually a nerd so um maybe i was trying to be like a, a wolf in sheep's clothing there but yeah you know i think there's a ton of different programs that are helpful. And then I'll say that the last thing was, I think this is also uh, a good mechanism for trying to increase diversity and to try and get to more kind of equitable science community. So the elementary school I was volunteering at was low income and more diverse. And then uh, the science pen pal, same, same kind of idea. So trying to encourage students who don't have a lot of positive associations, who don't have a lot of scientific role models, get them in the sciences. Because, you know, the more diversity we have, the better scientific community we have. And in terms of your next step, so you've talked a lot about your journey through music and into your second round of your bachelor's and into your PhD, and really about the interdisciplinary work that you're able to do and apply all of these um, skills to different questions. So with your next steps in your career, do you see yourself staying in science or returning to music or kind of having a mix of the two? So I'll definitely be staying in science for the foreseeable future. Get a guitar out or a piano out every once in a while and, and play mostly to my dogs and my wife. But uh, I was actually hoping uh, in my postdoc that I can maybe join a band again. I kind of want to play bass in a soul band, but we'll see what happens, you know. But I am going to do a postdoc next at the Fred Hutch in Seattle. Um, so this is um, an institute that does a lot of cancer research, but also a lot of infectious disease work. And I'll be joining a, a T-cell lab that does a lot of uh, single-cell omics biology, too. So I'll be kind of continuing uh, similar kind of work going forward. And I will continue doing science as long as I find it to be fulfilling, which I imagine will be a long time. But, you know, I try and plan in such a way where I have lots of options, but I also try and not make a lot of long-term decisions because the person who actually has to make the decision is not the person I am yet. And so my priorities will change. My uh, interests will change. So I don't have a super solid, you know, 20 year plan. Well, congratulations on getting your postdoc position. Um, so I guess just a couple of questions with that. Uh, my question's kind of a little outside of this. It's more of um, so going through difficulties and really trying to solidify what's important to you and what you find interesting. How do you delineate between whether this is a challenge and something that you need to push through the hardships or whether it's something that you're not necessarily not interested in, you're interested in, but probably shouldn't go through with. Yeah, I think this is one of the times where having a good circle of close friends is, is so vital, having a community. I think with decisions about like transitioning away from a thing, giving up for a thing, there's a lot of emotion you'll have that are gonna cloud your thinking. So, you know, whenever we have to quit or give up on something, there's a lot of feelings of inadequacy and failure and just a lot of self-deprecation that goes along with it. So I, I kind of experienced this before my PhD, which I think helped a lot. So, you know, I, my dream going for the first, you know, decade of my adult life was to be a musician and to be a recording artist and recording engineer and to produce music. And uh, I had some success, but uh, I, I could never make a full living off of it. I was in a couple of bands, but, you know, none of them made it to any kind of level of success that would be sustainable economically. So nothing that I could use as my, my main income. And then I had bands break up. And so I, I kind of left the music world kind of feeling like a failure, feeling like I had not fulfilled all the dreams that I, I wanted to. And it's really hard. Uh, I think that weight kind of stays with you for a long time, particularly if you don't have people around you who can put it in perspective for you. And so at that point in my life, I don't think I had the, the right people telling me the right thing. So that was kind of like a, actually a pretty dark time for me um, when I was kind of wandering. This also then coincided with a relationship ending. 
like a lot of other kind of negative things in my life going on. So I'd say, you know, in my, my PhD, I've, I faced other challenges too, professionally, personally, you know, I've had loss and breakups and, you know, uh, all of the hardships that life throws you. And in my PhD, I think a, having had that experience before was helpful, but B the most important thing was having people around me who could really give me perspective and objective opinion about what I had accomplished, what was, was my fault, what wasn't my fault and what my best way forward, uh, was, you know, essentially we are often too hard on ourselves. And in that moment, we feel all this inadequacy and it, it really kind of almost freezes you from being able to make a decision, let alone the right decision. So, uh, again, having those people around you who can, uh, shine light on all of those can really help you get through those hard times. I think. Yeah. Thanks for being like super transparent on that. Cause a lot of the times you hear people who are going through their journey, they make these massive changes and don't necessarily know the process of how that happened and kind of the negative feelings associated with that and the hangups that you feel going through that. Yeah, um, this, this is something you get from like age generally too, but you know, I, I think this, this is maybe kind of cliched, but like the mantra that it gets better, you know, this was posted out for um, LGBTQ youth a long time ago as um, a way to kind of encourage people through the hardships of high school. But it's kind of true at any point in your life, you know, when you're feeling all, all, all these these down moments and you, you've you've gone through failure, you kind of feel like things are over. But I mean, at least can show you that you can reinvent yourself pretty easily, um, that we are, you know, resilient people. And if you have the right people around you, man, like all of these little hardships in life and, you know, not, not more little, all these big hardships in life, uh, they pass too. You know, there's there's good times ahead if there's good people around you. Now, looking back on everything that we've discussed, so coming from your BSc to now graduating, congrats again, and Thank now um, getting into this position at your new postdoc. So looking back on all of that training and research experience, what advice would you give to yourself when you first started this journey? Well, I, uh, I want to first and foremost acknowledge luck. And my success too, there's some serendipity involved in all of these things. So I think it's important to, to keep that in mind, both for the highs and the lows. But yeah, as I said, I think the most important thing for me has been people I've been working with, making sure that they're good people that I respect. And so my work environment is not toxic. And so I can go in and be around people that I genuinely love while I'm working. And that can just, you know, keep you inspired and keep you going when all your experiments fail and. Uh, you realize that it's completely your fault, <laughs> which, you know, happened several times through my PhD, but then having people around you who are, uh, can encourage you and, uh, advise you was, was super fundamental to all that. Yeah. And then the other thing would be, as I, I kind of alluded to before is finding a system that works for you. So whenever you ask for advice on how to be successful in academics, you will hear 10,000 contradictory opinions and somehow they're all kind of right and all kind of wrong. And I think it, it kind of speaks to how diverse we are as people and how there's not one method that's going to fit everybody. So the challenge is to find a way that allows you to be productive and creative while also being happy and able to experience other facets of life outside of the lab. So, you know, I, I have a ton of hobbies. I'm a, a, a kind of an outdoorsy person. So I, I rock climb, I ski, I go backpacking, all that stuff. I have musical background, so I have all those instruments still. And then in the lab, uh, I really like B cells, but I also have projects that are looking at hematopoiesis and uh, the dengue virus, you know, cancer diagnostics. So for me, having uh, a broad range of topics, so if something's bringing me down, I can shift over a little bit. That was helpful for me. I'm also a morning person, so I try and front load my day with work. Brain starts getting pretty fuzzy by like 7 p.m. But you know, that's not the secret to success. That's the secret to like what worked for me. Um, so if you're a night person, embrace that. If you know you need X amount of solitude today, make sure you can find that too. I, I've tried to always go with the ebb and flow of research. So there's times where I'm working 14 hour days for like a month and then there are times where I just take off and don't think about science for like, you know, two weeks. Uh, I, I was fortunate to have an advisor that kind of understood and allowed that process, but even on a, a level that's maybe less flexible hours wise, you know, the ability to 
really focus when you need to. And then, you know, the, 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 the balance of that, of make sure that you can find time to unwind and, you know, remember what, what it is to be human and kind of embrace all of the beauty that comes around the best human experiences you can have, you know, music, love and friendship and art. Thanks so much. So with that, I just, on behalf of our podcast, we'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, to providing your insights on your project, but also on personal things and your advice that you had for us. So we're really grateful that you took the time to speak with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure to speak with all of you. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for staying until the end of the episode, and we really hope that you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Glass. He gave some amazing advice, and it was such a joy speaking with him and learning from him. We hope you had as much fun listening as we had fun recording. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amino and Beyond to keep up with new information and new episodes. Also consider following McMaster Immunology Research Center on Twitter to keep up with the interesting research that's happening at the center. And this was your weekly dose of immunology.